Hi, my name's Christian Morgans, journalist and documentary maker. I have a background in professional sports, and the sport that intrigues me the most is boxing, both licensed and unlicensed. It soon became clear to me, delving into the world of unlicensed boxing, how difficult it was to reach out to the characters involved, as many of them were commonly associated with the criminal underworld and were very much adverse to attention, whether it be good or bad. I was fascinated by the world of unlicensed boxing and have spent many hours researching, whether it be on the internet, through books, through interviews. But one particular thing kept rearing its head, which soon became clear. East London had two most famous fighters ever, Roy Pretty Boy Shaw and Lenny the Governor McLean. Of course, both were criminals, who would be connected with two of London's most decorated promoters, Alex Steen and Frank Warren. And both fighters be associated with London's most major criminals, whether it be Joey Pyle or the Cray Twins. The more I researched, there was just one thing that kept nagging away at me. The massive gap in the world of unlicensed boxing, I could just not understand. For if you take just a short trip to the West End of London, it seemed as though there was a massive void in both fighters, gangsters and criminals in the history books. It's as though unlicensed boxing just never existed in the West End. In our World Cup in West London, it wasn't known uh, street fighting and prize fighting, illegal fights. It wasn't known. No one knew nothing about it, yeah? But it was promotions, is not it? It felt like there wasn't anybody to promote the fights. There was no promoters. Um, I, that's why I moved to Lewisham. I moved to a pub down there, met Eddie Richardson, uh, Gypsy Tom, Terry Coombs, Terry Sharp, and met people there that, that actually were fighting. I had a talk with Eddie, and then I met Jimmy Tibbet, uh, down the Beckett. I was training down there, and I was seeing him training with a few people. And uh, I started talking to him, and he said, you're interested in, 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 in doing illegal fights? Uh, I went, yeah, yeah, of course I am. This is what I want to do. I've heard about it when I was in prison. I can have a well, and that's what I want to do. While East London had Jack the Ripper to its legend, killing at least five prostitutes in 1888, whilst in 1964, West London would sadly have Jack the Stripper killing at least six prostitute victims, Whilst East London was home to the Cray Twins, West London was home to the crazed criminal Harry Roberts, who infamously shot and killed three unarmed police officers in Shepherd's Bush, West London. And when Supergrass Bertie Smalls blew the whistle on the armed robbery gang, it transpired that most of the criminals were actually from West London. So we clearly see there was crime in West London, just as in East London. Unlicensed boxing would largely remain in the East End of London. Apart from the odd boxer, making the trek across the city from west to east. It would remain this way for more than a quarter of a century. Just like East London, West London would open the door for its very own unlicensed legend. But unlike Roy Shaw and Lenny McLean, this character would not publicly promote himself. A career going back over 20 years in the social media age, the West London legend avoids all social media. I by now, by my own admission, was about to give up trying to find this character. But by chance, a mutual friend put us in contact. To my amazement, over 20 years had passed since I'd first been recommended to meet this character. 
When we sat down to my excitement, this character was very forthcoming. And when he revealed he had all his fight footage and much more footage of many other legends. Overwhelmed with excitement, I nervously asked about the possibility of making a documentary on his life as one of West London's most famous unlicensed boxers and the originator of its birth. The character in question looked me straight in the face with piercing bluey green eyes and said, yes, but on one condition. I'm from a Romany gypsy English family, and from a little boy, we are taught to never ever boast, no matter how good or bad your fighting skills are. And one more condition, there will be no lies in this documentary, only the truth. I agreed. I'm going to bring this character's old unlicensed boxing career into focus, and his promoting skills to which he brought legends to the ring. I have many interviews with the people he has encountered, some who are huge names in the trade of boxing, and others who are infamous villains. I'm also going to focus on the similarities between this character and the kings of the unlicensed boxing scene, Roy Shaw and Lenny McLean, whilst on the other hand, they could not be further apart. Before I bring this fighting legend into the picture, he's given me a deep insight into his family tree. Trust me, it's not by chance, but this man would turn out to be a fighter. From two of the biggest English Romany families in the UK, I have a deep look back into the fighters from both his mum's and dad's side of the family. This man, Aaron Smith, is the subject's great-great-grandfather. A hard, toughened, bare-knuckle fighter from London, he would adopt the name Stockings for every time he fought, he wore stockings. Aaron was renowned for using Cockney rhyming slang, hence the name he was given, Rhymer Stockings. This name would be carried through future generations of the Smith family, as they were now known as the Smith Stockings. It was a useful way of differentiating this faction of the Smiths from the vast Smith Romany Gypsy families amongst the UK. The man pictured here was born Thomas Brazil. From Sussex and the Kent borders, Thomas Brazil would become better known as Thomas Bradley. The reason for this was he's often seen counting pounds, which was a bit of a rarity coming from his background in these times. As the horse trader and scrap dealer was counting his pounds, fellow Romneys would call him Bradley. The nickname for a pound during these times was actually Bradbury, but with mispronunciation, he ended up being called Bradley. Tom Bradley came to notoriety in the town of Portsmouth, where he'd beaten the best fighter from the rough and tough naval town. It was a dispute over a handkerchief which Bradley had been wrongly accused of taking, and so he duly dished out a beating to the top man. Bradley would continue fighting for years. The tall and well-built Bradley built up a fearsome reputation. In latter years, in Kent, where Bradley would remain, he met his future wife, Homie Eastwood, who would sadly die in her 30s, leaving Bradley to bring up his children. It's amazing to think that Aaron Smith, Rymer Stockins, would have three grandsons, all of which would become professional boxers. The first one I'm going to pay focus to is the grandfather of the subject. He too would be named Aaron Smith after his grandfather before him, and he duly took over his grandfather's nickname of Rymer Stockins. He turned to booth fighting without any amateur experience just to make some money. It was a rough and tough road, but his persistence and determination caught the eye of the boxing booth owner who insisted on a new name, a fighter name. And it was here that Aaron Smith, Rhymer Stockins, became Jack Daly. Jack Daly would continue to hone his skills, becoming the head boxing booth fighter, aged just 17, taking on all comers. He fought the legendary future world champion Freddie Mills in the boxing booth. Jack went on to become a seasoned professional, fighting all over London and the southeast. He once fought abroad and challenged for numerous titles. His huge determination was noted in one boxing report. This theme would continue in future fights as Daly had no quit in it. Whether it was down on the floor, broken noses, cuts, he would always continue.
He once fought for a title where he was winning on points to be cruelly stopped by the referee as he had heavy cuts around his eyes and his mouth. In the very final round, Daly's boxing career and booth fighting would span over 20 years. The tough but generous Daly would be a legend amongst his own and seen to many others. Staying in the same generation on his dad's side of the family, this little character, born Walter Smith, ring name Tim Sullivan, a ferocious little battler who fought just like his cousin, Daly. And just like Daly, he had a career that spanned over 20 years in both professional boxing and booth fighting. He'd very often be seen taking on men hugely bigger than him, but he'd always do the business. Some even referred to him as a freak of nature. Slightly uncanny that he was small, coming from the Smith Stockings family. This talented little two-handed warrior entertained all over London and the South East. His cousin Daly actually said, pound for pound, my cousin Wally was actually better than myself. Staying in the same generation on dad's side of the family, this would be the brother of the character's grandfather, Jack Daly, William Smith, ring name, Dido Stockings. Dido had some professional experience, but huge amounts of booth fighting. But his legendary status was gained from bare knuckle fighting. Dido Stockings had once beaten one of the most feared Romany gypsies in the country, a man named Frank Spear, better known as Poshy Frank. Poshy Frank was a big strong man with a ferocious reputation, but when they fought, he was an aging fighter, but still a huge favourite. But credit to Dido, when he won, he mentioned that he'd beat an aging fighter. Poshy Frank was believed to be in his mid-40s, but some 20 years later, Dido faced the same as Poshy Frank, facing a fighter 20 years his junior, in Leonard Brooker or Mitcham Green. Leonard Brooker was a fearsome fighter from the tough town, aged around 25, with Dido being in his mid-40s. Stockings was taking a severe beating but giving some back but the supremely tough Dido Stockings just refused to give in and the fight went on for over one hour before the huge crowd. It was a small gambling debt that the fight ensued over and eventually the fight was called a draw with Stockings reportedly saying age makes no difference. The legendary gypsy fighter, Johnny Frankham's father, Jim, had once said, to hit Dido you may as well go and hit the main road, you'll get just as much joy. In the same generation, but on the mum's side of the family, Joe Bradley is the grandfather of our character. He once had a legendary fight at Corpse's Pit, a famous staying place for Romanies, with Dido Stockings. The fight lasted over half an hour. It began over a dispute over a cigarette. They were 15 and 16 years old at the time, respectively. It was a fearsome fight, with neither given an inch of ground. But eventually, their fathers and family pulled them apart, leaving the fight in a draw. They remained close friends. Bradley, a heavy-set man, was well known for his kind and generous heart, always helping those in need. The horse and scrap dealer, like his father before him, was a loving man, but he'd stand no nonsense. And any time anyone crossed him, it ended in a fight, with Joe Bradley ending victorious. Back onto our character's father's side of the family, this fearsome little warrior, Walter Smith, ring name Wally Stockins. He is the first cousin of the father of our character. Just like the Wally Stockins before him, Tim Sullivan, he was deemed to be a freak of nature. Quite small, unusually from the Stockins Smith family, this little two-handed warrior had around 200 amateur fights before turning over and becoming professional. He made a great start to his pro career, tipped to go on and become a champion, but the tragic loss of his father derailed his career and he never fulfilled his potential as a professional. He went on to have numerous bare knuckle fights, never losing any of them, and he was very often, just like the Wally before him, fighting men much, much bigger than himself.
The hugely respected gypsy man Tom Creamy Eastwood was once witnessed saying Wally Smith's stockings was the best pound for pound he'd ever seen. On to his mum's side of the family, this man is the grandson of Joe Eastwood, also known as Joe Bradley. He is the first cousin of our character, is Clifford Champ Eastwood. He was a seasoned boxer with around 100 amateur and professional fights. Amazingly, he never got put on the floor once or stopped in a contest. He turned professional at just 17 years old, winning 60% of his fights. He was noted for having tremendously fast hands and a great chin. Our next fighter is Tom Creamy Eastwood, brother of Clifford Champ Eastwood. Tom Creamy Eastwood was a feared heavyweight boxer. Him and his brother Cliff were both introduced to the sport by our character's father. He'd get taken to the boxing gym in Surrey by his uncle. When there, Tom would say, Uncle Aaron, how do you think I'm doing? He'd say, my boy, if you want this, you'll be a professional and make lots of money. He didn't have his first gym fight till 15, but went on to become a senior before he turned professional at the age of 20. This fearsome fighting man hit the legendary Gary Mason in sparring and knocked him to the floor. Just to illustrate how good Gary Mason was, his only defeat as a professional was in a cut in a ninth round stoppage to the legendary Lennox Lewis, the defroner of Iron Mike Tyson, champion of the world. That's how hard a puncher this fearsome man, Tom Creamy Eastwood, hit. Tom Creamy Eastwood retired unbeaten as a professional. On to our subjects dad's side of the family this character jimmy smith fight name jimmy stockings is the first cousin of our subject's dad jimmy stockings had over 180 amateur fights but it is not here where his real talent lied he would become a legendary knuckle fighter so legendary they have write books about him jimmy was born as a baby with his feet displaced and he would struggle to walk in his early years he wasn't gifted with the athleticism that some people were, but what he lacked there, he made up for with sheer grit, stamina, courage, determination, and a huge punch resistance. He fought some of London's hardest men in his time. He once had a bare-knuckle fight with the fearsome Tom Creamy Eastwood. It was believed to be one of the best, most brutal knuckle fights ever witnessed in London, and in true Romany fashion, just like generations before them. To this day, they remain good friends. It'd be by no mistake that these two warriors would both have sons that went on to become professional fighters. Tom Creamy's son, Tommy Eastwood, was a regular sparring partner for the heavyweight champion of the world, David Hay. He would go on to become professional Southern Area Cruiserweight Champion, destroying his opponent. Due to injury, his career was cut short, and unfortunately he wasn't able to defend his title, and that'd be his last professional fight. Many wondered how far he could have progressed. Whilst Jimmy Stockin's son, Jimmy Smith, turned professional having had good solid amateur career, never being put to the floor or stopped. Neither was he stopped as a professional. He challenged the highly rated Zach Chelly for the Southern Area title. To many pundits' surprise, he went the full distance to lose on a close points decision. He also lost a close points decision to the world contender, Joshua Puazzi. Just like his dad, young Jimmy was noted for having huge punch resistance but is also a very gentle, nice man away from boxing. And finally, before we reveal our character in focus, from his dad's side, Gypsy Neville Smith, first cousin of our character. He had a very good amateur career, losing a points decision in a final of ABAs to world title challenger Ryan Rhodes. Smith, at six foot four, turned professional as a super middleweight. He remained unbeaten before retiring. Smith, a good upright boxer, had a big backhand right, 
and a left hook to match, disposing of some of his opponents with this power. A lovely, gentle, nice man away from the ring. Neville is one of Britain's good guys in the world of boxing. And right in the middle of this long line of warrior fighters is West London's unlicensed boxing originator and competitor, Joe Bugner Smith. Joe Bugner Smith was born in Isleworth, West London on 7th of July 1971 to parents Aaron and Mary. As a boy, Joe only carried two dreams, one of which was to become a boxer, the other very unusual from his background because he also wanted to become a golfer. Joe had his first taste of knuckle fighting at just six years old. He recalled, as a boy, his cousin Charlie used to continuously hit him with no reply. But one day, he decided to fight back, leading to a great fist fight even at this young age. Charlie was the slightly bigger boy, so even at that young age, Joe had to learn to make him miss and fire back with quick returns. Joe says he had to land three punches to every two of Charlie's just to keep him at bay. Charlie was the younger brother of Tom Creamy Eastwood and Cliff Champ Eastwood. Joe would make his first ring appearance at just seven years old, ironically on the same bill as his first cousin, Tom Creamy Eastwood. This took place at the famous Pitt House Club, home to the Yule and Epson Boxing Club. These gym fights consisted of three two-minute rounds of boxing in front of a packed home crowd. Smith became a member of the Foley Boxing Club in Surrey. He went on to become a veteran of gym fights, having over 15, and many of them he was much the younger fighter. He recalls on one occasion boxing a boy of 12 years old when he was just nine. I gave it my all, punching away for the full three rounds, and nearly gave it as good as I got. 18 months later, his brother Aaron was in the semi-final of the ABAs. In the dressing room before his fight, I ended up speaking to one of the boxers. My brother Aaron said, how do you know him? And I said, I boxed him before. My brother said, he's in the semi-finals of the ABAs. The boy ended up winning the finals. Joe ended up having regular spars and fights with his first cousin, Charlie, who was also a member of the Foley Boxing Club. Paul Bradley, a southern-based scouser who ran the club, he was once asked about some of the great spars he had witnessed, especially given that he had had the likes of Frank Bruno in the club, Paul Moyles and Tom Creamy Eastwood. Bradley himself, who was a former Navy boxing champion, replied, yes, I have, but none of which to compete with Joe and his cousin Charlie. The guy asked who Joe and Charlie were, and Bradley replied, one a boxer, one a fighter, who used to have the most ferocious spars, always trying to kill each other. My name's Andy Stoneface Till. I was three times British Lightweight champion, WBC international champion. He said, I've got me belts to prove it, and I've still got me good looks. When I first met Joe Bugner Smith, I said, I was training for the uh, British Light Midweight title against uh, Tony Collins. And these three fellas come in, Joe and the two of his cousins, I thought, hold up, they come down here to spy on me. But uh, he's come in and he, and he said straight away, oh, a couple of hours, can I spy with Andy Till? And me trainer, let him, me uh, manager trainer, Johnny Bloomfield, said, yeah, go on. And old hands up to Joe, he give, he he done as good as any other fighter could have done. He kept coming back and we become good friends. We sparred many rounds together. There's at the times where I, I beat Tony Collins in four rounds and Wally Swift in three rounds. And he done a tremendous job by uh, giving me as good as I got. I walked in the gym one day, looked at me and I said, where's Joe? They said, he's turned pro. I said, what do you mean turned pro? Where's he boxing? Greenwood or? He said, no, pro, golfer. I said, what do you mean fucking pro golfer? You ain't a fucking golfer. <laughs>
Joe Smith cuts an impressive figure on the golf course. But the man who used to deal in cuts and bruises is now more interested in breaking par, not people's noses. He's made the transition from bare-knuckle fighter to professional golfer. Of course it makes sense. The art of the battle, you know, the more you like it. And on occasions like that, I think uh, my previous job or things I've done don't do me any harm, you know. Um, there is comparison, and fighting's easier, believe me. Smith's adult boxing began after he started attending a fitness gym in Heathrow. This gym had its own little boxing section. Smith began regularly attending exercise and spinning classes. He began training five days a week and quickly got his weight down from 20 stone to 17 stone. By this time, Smith had befriended the gym's head fitness instructor, Tel Curry. Tel was a former amateur boxer and massive boxing enthusiast. Smith by this point had decided to not let his fitness go to waste. He pondered on which type of boxing to get into, whether it be the amateur, the licensed boxing with the board or the unlicensed boxing scene. But after speaking to the boss of the unlicensed scene, Alan Mortlock, he decided this was going to be his route. And soon a date was set at Epping Forest Country Club, a venue where the famous pretty boy Roy Shaw had fought some 20 years previously. Unfortunately, Smith's opponent from Newcastle would pull out at late notice. In true unlicensed fashion, Mark Patrick would step in. There was a huge weight disparity between the two men, with Smith being 16 stone and Patrick being 13. Smith said, I knew of Mark Patrick, he was a top amateur, and once fought my good friend, Chin the Ref, Bobby Frankham. We had a nice boxing match, and I felt truly honoured to have shared the ring with Patrick. And Carl Bywise, his head cornerman, two warriors and gentlemen. Smith by now had cemented his friendship with Tel Curry and he had now become Smith's trainer. With Smith's fitness increasing to the max, training six days a week, only resting on a Sunday. A strict nutrition plan got put in place and Smith restrained from consuming any alcohol in the lead up to his fights. Daily routines now consisted of early morning runs and boxing training in the evenings. Smith said that on his rest day, he felt like he was cheating and couldn't wait to do it all again the next day. Tell Curry would once say, there's 2,000 members in this gym and I know all of those who work out. And Smith, without doubt, is the fittest of them all. Whilst Curry was dedicated to his place of work, Smith would travel on his own to go and find sparring. I asked Smith who and what level of sparring partners he went up against, excluding Andy Till back in the day. He reeled off the following. Ryan Walls, Southern Area Champion. Kevin Phelan, British Masters Champion. Lardy Price, English Title Contender. Steve O'Meara, Southern Area Champion. Jamie Hearn, World Under 25 Title Challenger. Southern Area Challenger, Brian Sonny Nichols. Roman Green. IBO international champion, Gypsy George Carmen, five times title challenger, Darren Bowman, world kickboxing champion, British unlicensed champions, Paul Kavanagh and Terry Rummel, world unlicensed champion, Stacey Dunn, and amateur champions, John Frankham Jr. and Les Stevens Jr. and Big Barry Smith, plus many, many more. I put it to Smith that he had sparred 16 champions or challengers of titles. I asked him if he got knocked down or knocked out by any of these. He said no. I asked him, why do you think this is? He stated, none of them decided to hit me hard enough on that day. Still not giving much away, I said to Smith, was there any of these boxers that particularly stood out to you? He replied, all of them. They're all warriors, and more importantly, all my friends. Smith's next fight was against Mark King at the Circus Tavern. Late, but then again, he still looks very lively, fit and strong, and, oh, Joe, come on, Joe, don't need that. 
I've always been remembered. This is Joe's first fight, and he actually doesn't give him a great deal, and uh, he was quite nervous for this, obviously, for headbutting. When asking Smith about the fight, he replied, this was an awkward clash of styles and a messy fight. It wasn't Mark's fault, it was just his awkward style that clashed. Smith won by disqualification, but Smith said, I got away with one here. Ironically, this would become a family affair as Joe's cousin, Tom Eastwood, beat Mark's brother, Paul Keane, in a board of control fight on points. Joe's third fight was at the York Hall, Bethnal Green, East London, against Tony Louie. Smith would say, a nice bloke, Tony. I remember him topping the bill, a Spurs fan, against a West Ham fan. Did it kick off with the crowd. Three police officers came to escort me from the changing room for my walk-in. I said to them, gentlemen, I'm fine. I'm just a little old Brentford fan. I'll manage on my own, thank you. Me and Tony had a nice boxing match, and in the fourth, I managed to catch him with a couple of lucky shots. The sanctuary Milton Keynes would be the venue for Smith's fourth fight against opponent Gridlius Gridelius. This would be Smith's first international fight. Smith said Gridlius was a nice strong man, but with the punches I caught him with, it badly damaged his eye. Otherwise, it would have been a much tougher fight. Smith was now beginning to gain serious recognition, having stopped all his opponents apart from the first bout, which he went easy on Mark with the free stone disparity. But it was not only his boxing that started to gain attention, as Joe delved into the world of promoting. West London had always previously been somewhat cut off from the strange world of unlicensed boxing, which is always associated with criminals, gangsters, ex-pros, street fighters and glamorous women. Smith brought everything to West London that East London had had for the previous 30 years, and his popularity as promoter started to grow. It's just it's the local fight, you know what I mean? Bad fist, all boxing, and, uh, and then the name just come. I had over 100 amateur fights, then I... Uh, turned pro at 21, and then a couple of years later, uh, I had to bring up my son on my own. Uh, he was six months age. It interrupted a lot of things, but uh, then later on, I just got into unlicensed and bar brawling and fist fighting outside, fighting for silly amounts of money. In my prime, British middleweight champion Roy Gums, I fought three times. Three times. three times. Met Joe uh, a few years back in the in the pub, and uh, I knew he was a fighting man. And I asked him, you know, would you like a fight? And uh, Joe politely said to me, uh, not yet. Maybe some other time. I was hung over. I was going to go for a beer, and then Joe pulled up, said, "On the green." So we got to the green on. Now I'm getting, I'm 43, and then he started to throw these fast shots and at me, and I was like to get up, like sort of getting get, get into gear then. And he was throwing fast and sharp punches, and uh, we stepped up an another notch, and then he said, do you want to have a draw? In boxing, you, you've got to think on your feet. And when the draw was offered, I uh, 
for well I've got my teeth in my mouth for my nuts and and I've got a few hundred quid to have a drink. <laughs> and after two or three beers, next thing Joe said, get into the gym Monday morning and then six weeks later I was fighting the pit bull. I was down, I was training down a gym um, at Heathrow Airport. Um, we used to go down there quite a lot, me and, me and a friend just to have like a workout. And basically Joe was uh, upstairs working out on his sort of own. Uh, he was like sort of uh, sparring, sparring, doing a bit of bag work and stuff like that. We just got chatting, uh, just nice and casual. Um, and I told Joe to do a bit of kickboxing. Um, and he said to me, do you want to do a bit of sparring with me? So I said to him, yeah. Um, I had some, I had my gloves on me. So we did a bit of sparring. Um, but Joe was a lot better than me. And uh, he sort of knocked me about a bit. Uh, Joe said to me, he said like, do you, do you, have you ever done any sort of boxing, like in the ring or anything like that? I said, no. And after that, we started training together. Um, Joe like pushed me a little bit harder every time we sort of trained. And he pushed me and he pushed me. And Joe said to me, right, you're on my next bill. And that was the start of uh, like my boxing career. Yeah, my time doing the unlicensed, all I can say is I had the best time of my life. Smith's next fight would again be an international fighter against US Marine and pro fighter Rambo Patton. Whilst making this documentary, I asked Smith if he had a hard punch. He replied, no, not really. Maybe just a little if I planted my feet and meant it. And sadly for Rambo Patton, Smith meant this devastating right hand that would knock out Patton for several minutes. Right there from Smith, what a shot that was. All over. Fantastic win for Joe Bugner. Smith. Smith added, in defence to Patton, he got caught cold. I think he expected me to start a lot slower. Another great West London fighter was uh, Brian Sonny Nichols. They called him Skatty because he was, he was absolutely Skatty. <laughs> Brian Sonny Nichols boxed uh, Winston Spencer for uh, an eliminated for the Southern Area title. And uh, during the fight, they had a little clash of heads, because I remember, and a bit of sweat run down Brian's face and he thought he was cut. So all of a sudden, he's grabbed hold of Winston Spencer, he's just jumping up here and nutting him. And he got, he got barbed and boxing for doing that. You've got, got to have some sort of special certain skills to tame a fellow like Brian Nichols, because like, like his nickname claims, Brian Scatty Nichols, he was nutty. Oh, he's fucking what? He's just fucking light switch. Smith's next opponent was the infamous Brian Sonny Nichols. Smith said when the fight got made, him and Brian just burst out laughing as they're both good friends, who trained together and had sparred tons of rounds. We were never going to hurt each other. Smith joked, I was really just trying not to upset him. Sadly, Brian left us too early. God bless you, my old mate. Leaving nothing to chance, Joe Bugner Smith, with Tell Curry's permission, they would secretly hire Frank Bruno's trainer, Johnny Bloomfield. Bloomfield was appointed Bruno's number two by George Francis. They led Bruno to win a world title and would be involved in the biggest fight Britain had ever seen, Tyson versus Bruno 2. Smith would be constantly practicing his skills and techniques. By his own admissions, he felt he was improving all the time. Smith by this time was edging closer to title contention. But sometimes matchmaking is difficult and Smith's seventh fight 
was against, after a late pullout, Tony Louis, a man he had KO'd previously in the fourth round. But Smith had trained hard this time, expected a stiff test, and the fight was over quickly in the first round. Smith said, fair play to Tony, he stepped in late, and in fairness, I'd probably improved a bit since our first fight. The hard work Smith was putting in would be needed, as he was to fight for the London heavyweight unlicensed belt. Smith said, I was excited when Alan Mortlock announced it. I thought, perfect, the fight be staged in my side of London, which would be easy for my fans. I wonder which part of London my opponent would be from. But again, no opponent was announced, so I had no idea who my opponent would be. Two fellow Londoners, Dominic Negus from the east side and Stacey Dunn from the north side, Two really good fighters and nice fellas to their credit. They both had high honours of British and world respectively. So I knew it wasn't going to be one of them. But who it might be, I had no idea. Anyway, I leave it to Alan Mortlock. He always finds someone to fit the bill. And in true unlicensed fashion, my opponent would be from Belfast, who had taken settlement in London. I could tell he hadn't been here long because he had an extremely broad Northern Ireland accent. I remembered thinking to myself, the nearest thing you're going to be to a Londoner is Londonderry. And when he insisted on only being known as the Irishman, I stopped asking questions. Smith said the Irishman was a nice young man. We spoke a bit after. I guess it was just my night. It just seemed I got my punches off that little bit quicker. To his credit, he tried very hard. I knew this as he was screaming with anger, trying, it seemed, to take my head off. Thank God for the final bell. After the fight, Joe got given a belt by former British light heavyweight champion and king of the gypsies, Johnny Frankham. <laughs> Next up for Smith was German cruiserweight Axel Hines. Over six two-minute rounds, Hines, a well-travelled and game fighter, was giving it his best. But he just had no answer to the left hand of Smith. You can see Smith's compassion during this fight as he calls in ref Jimmy Stockins to stop the fight as he could see that Axel was just enduring too much punishment. Smith said, a game fella, Axel Hines. It was over 100 degrees in the venue on that August day. I seemed to time my jab okay that night. I guess it seemed to tire Axel a bit. Smith's gruelling training regime as well as his non-stop golf practice, was taking its toll on the 34-year-old's body. He'd already been under the surgeon's knife once at this point for an elbow injury, and other injuries were niggling in the background. It was a question of how long he could endure this for. When Joe first spoke to me about helping write his book, I was sceptical, because normally when I'm approached in that way, someone is saying, will, will you write your, my book for me? Um, obviously, I wasn't sure what he had to say, uh, the time, Lenny McLean's a governor and Pretty Boy Shaw's uh, biographies, autobiographies, had really um, ignited the genre uh, and brought uh, unlicensed boxing to the attention of the, the wider public. Um, I, I didn't know, you know what could be added after those two groundbreaking titles. And also at the time, Martin King and myself 
had just produced On the Cobbles with Jimmy Stockings. And I was wary about, you know, treading the same ground. Um, but Joe confounded me in two ways. He came back a few months later with 50,000 words, 50,000 good words. Um, and they revealed so many facets to his character and his life, uh, other than boxing. Turned out he was a boy wonder golfer, showered with cups and trophies, uh, had awards sent to him, uh, sorry, presented to him by Dennis Thatcher. BBC made a small documentary on him. Um, and and uh, at the time I first met him, he had just narrowly qualified, sorry, narrowly missed qualifying for the British Open. Um, so he was a serious, serious player. Um, he tells me that, he tells a story, it might be in the book, of, you know, he would walk, run a sort of trot around the golf course, punching leaves off the trees, keeping himself in trim, training. Uh, and I sort of pictured the older professional members, the doctors, the accountants at the golf club, you know, in their cravats, looking out the, the club room window, wondering, you know, what on earth is going on here? Um, so, you know, the question in, in, in my head was, is Joe an unusual professional golfer? Or is he an unusual, unlicensed boxer? The show must go on, and Smith put on a fantastic show under his promotions at the glamorous Thistle Hotel in Heathrow. Smith had some special guests there to the delight of the crowd. He had professional champions there, Johnny Frankham and Les Stevens, and the once king of unlicensed boxing, Roy Shaw. One by one, they were announced in the ring to the crowd's delight. On the six-piece bill was Roy's son, Gary. And top of the bill was Smith himself, against the well-travelled veteran fighter Steve Yoroff, who had once beaten Southern Area champion Roger McKenzie. Smith knew he was up against a hugely experienced fighter. They were having a tough fight, but then Smith managed to pull off an old professional trick. Smith would start shouting at the timekeeper. On his first times, Yoroff didn't react. The second time, he didn't react. On the third time, Yoroff took a slight look at the timekeeper and Smith pounced, unleashing some combos that bring the fight to a halt. Smith said, I learnt this trick of an old champion many years before. If I never tricked Steve, I would never have stopped him. He's a very tough man and a true gentleman. Oh, Steve Roth there shaking his head, saying so no, that didn't bother me, but I think that one right, that one probably did. Steve Roth still calling him on. And Joe doesn't need an invitation. Goes down again for another body shot there, and it could all be over again from Joe. But it's the body. Oh, there he goes again. Third knockdown in round three. And it could all be over now. It is indeed. Good win then for Joe Smith. Promoting would continue for Smith. And once again, he'd bring another legend to West London. This time, Britain's youngest gold medalist, Terry Spinks. The little man delighted the crowd, taking pictures, signing autographs and talking about his heroics. As the youngest ever Olympic champion, aged just 17. Smith's gloves were hung up, but not for long, as a children's charity coached Smith to return. In his way stood the tall, lean, 26-year-old Sheridan Davy. Smith seemed to start slow, having had some time out, but would soon find a rhythm 
and it appeared he had a bit in hand if needs be. Smith and Davy treated the crowd to a pleasing bout. Smith said, I appreciate Sheridan, who is a gentleman, who came a long way to box me. It was a decent bout, but the real winner of this one was the kids' charity. One of the things that I noticed was Smith's cornermen were actually kids, but it was fitting as it was a kids' charity too. The kids would go on to be good professionals. George Michael Carmen, twice world youth champion and southern area title challenger, Jimmy Smith. Hi, I'm George. Here we go, Jago. I'm junior ABA champion, Harrogate Box Cup winner, Golden Gloves winner, unbeaten professional boxer. I got my name, George. Here we go, Jago. A certain Joe Budden Smith. My very earliest boxing memories when I was seven years old. So Joe Budden Smith got me on one of his unlicensed shows. He came into the dressing room and rubbed me on the head. He said, "We've got a stage name for you, George. Here we go." Jago, which has stuck with me ever since. I remember I went to put on my boxing kit, and Joe Budden Smith said. No vest, you're a professional now. So I boxed at the age of seven with no vest on an unlicensed boxing scene. It was an absolute brilliant day full of memories. I was awarded a medal from the legendary unlicensed fighter, Freddie Fred. I also met British title challenger, Simon Harris. I had a professional Wally Stockings ref in my fight. At the end of it, I had Joe Budner-Smith walk in the changing rooms, rub you on the head, there's 50 pound, welcome to the pro ranks. The next person that paid me as a professional was Frank Warren. Yeah, one of the funniest things uh, when I was doing the unlicensed is I was asked to fight in a bill in Uxbridge. Uh, it's a big nightclub, and there must have been about 2,000 people in there. Um, the actual bit where the fighters like warmed up was down in the basement, and I was like the last fight on. I was down there, I was doing all my pads. I was getting like really psyched up for the fight. Anyway, about half an hour passed, and I thought, the other fight was only like three or four rounds. What am I doing? I'm still, I'm still here. I'm getting knackered because I've been doing like pads, 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 trying to keep warm, moving about. Nothing happened. The trainer sort of went out to have a look and uh, he never come back. And then like in the end, I sort of got up, walked up the stairs, got into the, you know, got, walked actually into the actual nightclub entrance and the whole place was just empty. There was no one there. It was like really surreal. And I was thinking to myself, hang on a moment, have I, have I had my fight? Have I been knocked out or something? Because <laughs> the last time I saw it, this place was packed. You know, it, it was like really, really surreal and mental. But uh, <laughs> I found out by afterwards that eventually it had really kicked off in the actual ring uh, between a couple of fighters and it spread out into the crowd and everyone had been booted out of the venue. Um, <laughs> so I didn't know what to do, so I had to sort of got up. Not even, I had to walk out with my boxing gloves. There was no one there even to undo my gloves. Sort of walked down the street <laughs> to make me way home. Yeah, that was one of the funniest things. Smith would now firmly hang up his gloves and hand down his expertise to a younger generation of fighters. Smith has a very impressive record as a trainer, leading young boxers from unlicensed to impressive professionals. While Smith wouldn't publicise himself in this field, but for those who know him, they believe Smith holds the very highest skill set of a trainer. He sailed through the requirements put in place by the British Boxing Board of Control to gain his licence on one occasion a leading pro boxing manager approached Smith. He said his cornerman had been delayed and asked Smith, could he work in his fighter's corner for the title fight? For this is how highly rated he is as a trainer. As I moved through Smith's career, 
all aspects of his boxing life appear to me to be completely rounded off. He has been successful and unbeaten as a fighter. As a promoter, he's brought it all to the table, including title fights and legends. As a trainer, he has a great success rate and a reputation that could climb as high as he wished, leaving Smith with nothing left to prove. Well, I lost my mum at 10 years old and then my dad got sentenced to life in jail for arm robbery. And then my, I had twin sisters that was taking care of me and she struggled because I had other uh, younger brothers and sisters and it was too much hard work for them. And then uh, Joe and my first cousin Christine took me on as a step-parent. Yeah, when I was about 18 years old, there was an incident um, I was in a pub watching uh, England on the World Cup and then I got into a fight and I knocked someone out for a fair while and then Joe got to hear about it and he come up to me and said, what are you playing at, fighting in pubs? He said, if you want to fight, get in the ring and do it. And I said, I do. So in the space of two years from starting, I've become WSO unlicensed British champion. And then I turned professional. I had two good professional fights. And then my third professional fight, I had two broken ribs in the second round. I went the distance, lost on points. And then I had an injury, uh, a car injury, and an injury. I was out of action for a while. And then I had a comeback. It was one of the best fights I ever had. And then after that, I was getting my career back online with the boxing, and then I went gambling, and it just messed my career up. And my life just went downhill from then. Did your dad help you sort out the gambling problem at yeah, all? Was you strict on the arm? Of course it was, mate. It was just ups and downs. It was just headaches, family rails and that. And then you just move on. But if there's any gamblers out there, it's it like in the Bible, it's a sin. It just wrecks your life. Just don't do it. Get out. Talk to me about your dad as a trainer then, Trevor. He just doesn't leave no stone unturned, mate. He, he knows all of the old, book, old tricks in the book, mate. And so when you had the fight where you broke your ribs and that, obviously some of these oh, old professional yeah. tricks you came in useful and that, yeah. that's the only way you sort of got through of course, the fight all Of course, of course. It, it was helpful. Literally, I, I, was, I never had the experience of having broken ribs, so he was in the corner showing me what to do. Like, stand up, don't sit down, don't show no pain, no weaknesses. So your opponent don't come back in the next round and just punch you back in where it hurts, you know what I mean? What you don't know, you could write at the back of a poster stamp. As I move through Smith's career, all aspects of his boxing life appear to me to be completely rounded off. He has been successful and unbeaten as a fighter. As a promoter, he's brought it all to the table, including title fights and legends. As a trainer, he has a great success rate and a reputation that could climb as high as he wished, leaving Smith with nothing left to prove. So I and all others around him fought. It had been almost 10 years since Smith's last fight and not much short of 40 years since his first fight. Yet, amazingly, Smith would announce he was going to make his comeback as a fighter. Unfortunately for all those close to Smith, they could not talk him out of his comeback. For every one George Foreman, there is a thousand Joe Louis. Putting his unbeaten run on the line was secondary to his family, for his health was the obvious main concern. Smith's first retirement due to injury at age 35 is a normal expectancy for most athletes. For now, Smith had not only been out of the ring for 10 years, but there's a thing called father time that is a much bigger obstacle altogether. Smith may have thrown his hands around here and there during the odd bit of training. But what he had to remember, it had been over 10 years since he stepped in the ring. Boxing is a sport that relies on reflexes in order to get yourself in and out of danger. Put 10 years on father time and there's a very good chance that them same reflexes that got you out of trouble may now get you hurt. 
I can't help but to think back to one of the greatest sporting achievements ever, when the great George Foreman came back to regain the world title some 10 years after leaving the ring and some 20 years after he first held it. At the grand old age of 45, George had retired happy, healthy and with more money than he could ever have imagined. But sadly, there could only be one George Foreman as many boxers have come out of retirement trying to achieve their past feats. All boxers believe they can beat Father Time or at the very least keep up with him. These boxers go from small hall shows all the way up to stadium fighters. One part I find sad about this is some of those very fighters once fighting in big stadiums, the roles have now reversed and now some of them are fighting in the very small halls for the small purses. But sadly, like I said before, there could only be one George Foreman. And when boxers lose their reflexes, like we said, there's one thing that does always remain. The opponent in the far corner throwing shots back at them. The majority of comebacks end up with, at best, we're very proud of you. Or on the other side, we told you you're too old for this. It reminds me of the old saying, the last man to recognise he's past his best is the fighter himself. Joe Bugner Smith would turn to his old promoter and friend, Alan Mortlock, who would find a venue and an opponent. The famous old Circus Tavern would be the venue, and topping the bill would be Joe Bugner Smith. The Dan Lovett. Lovett was a journeyman, but he wasn't your typical journeyman fighter. Journeymen normally start with plenty of ambition to achieve titles, but for most fighters, the harsh reality of the pro trade and their lack of ability to sell tickets has them always playing second fiddle. Or alternatively, they might get caught by a champion-to-be on the way up. But they remain in love with the sport and the much-needed pay packet. And as the losses increase, so do the offers to fight. And then suddenly, they're on the road when losing becomes second nature. But survival is key, and they can't fight for another 28 days if they fail to survive the distance. As they go, they learn every trick in the book. But for Lovett, the journeyman, he started in Unlicensed. For the money and the thrill of it, he had no experience and was young in a catchweight division at 14 stone. He would often get blown away. The once unlicensed king, Dominic Negus, had beaten Lovett in one round. But as Lovett moved on, he matured both physically and skillfully, so much that he lost a close eight-round point decision for the British heavyweight unlicensed title to Lee Hum. He also carried venom in his punch. He had many knockouts to his credit, including a round one win over six-foot-ten giant Gary Sayers and further warning signs for Smith now in his 45th year and with his 10-year absence was Dan Lovett now aged 31 and fully matured 18 stone and having had 118 fights to his credit would announce that this would be his final fight before pursuing a career as a professional boxing ref in his own backyard the fighter for Canvey Island Essex was just down the road from the Circus Tavern the seasoned fighter would be keen to bow out in style as much as Smith would like to keep hold of his unbeaten record. Smith would leave his dressing room, a place that had seen so much jangling nerves over the years, from young singers, dancers, comedians, and of course, many boxers, young and old. As Joe Bugner Smith left his dressing room, accompanied by two of his sons and another trainer, he told them, I'm going to box this guy's head off. And if he thinks I can't punch, I'm going to knock him out. Clearly psyching himself up and trying to think positive was Smith. But here lay the problem with old fighters. They believe they can do it when nature perhaps thinks otherwise. What you thought of your dad's boxing comeback? I didn't really want him to box again because he he's 45. Like he last boxed when he was 35. That's 10 years ago. That's old enough. 
and I didn't want him to do it because I just think he was too old. Didn't want him to get up. Obviously, he's my dad. Tried in vain to talk him out of it, but he won't have none of it. And three months training camp, within the first two weeks, he had a glute muscle gone on him. So that, you know, and my fears even more. So what were your concerns then going into the fight? Well, he was a bit older and he could have got hurt as he was uh, older than what he was. So he wasn't like he was when he was younger and didn't really want him to get hurt. As he came out in his trademark red and white colours to the Leo Sayer version of the show must go on. But the harsh reality was the show didn't have to go on. As he approached the ring, the 2,500 capacity venue was nearly full. The fighters were announced. There, in his black shorts, weighing 18 stone, 1 pounds, was Dan Lovett. And Smith, at 16 stone and 2 pounds. And to look after this 34 stone of mass was former world heavyweight title contender, Mark Potter. Smith started quickly, scoring with plenty of quick jabs to the body and head. When they clinched for the first time, Smith threw a meaningful uppercut that Jess glanced Lovett. The old boy Smith was in control and Lovett was groaning frustration. And midway through, he came after Smith, square on. And Smith landed a right hand flush to the jaw of the 31-year-old Lovett. At this moment, it looked like the fight would go to Smith's pre-dressing round prediction. But unfortunately, it shook Lovett's senses right on the bell. And as Smith relaxed and stopped his attack, the younger man unleashed an attack that Smith managed to avoid receiving any serious damage from. It all seemed to be going well for Smith, but would his aging legs let him down? Lovett was now getting dangerously close to the veteran fighter, but little did he know he was playing right into Smith's traps as the quick counter-punch in Smith had him right where he wanted him. And the victory said, the show is back on the road. Friends, family, all just got nervous, but the only one that weren't nervous was Joe. And when he was dodging his punches and stuff, he knew what he was doing and he was the only one in there not being nervous, but everybody else was very nervous. <laughs> and you must have been over the moon after the fight, obviously, him doing so well. Yeah, he done really well, really, really well. Very good. So, he was old, but he wasn't cold. Have you dated well in the comeback fight? Yeah, done very well. I was put at ease probably a couple of weeks before. Dad sparred a big unbeaten heavyweight who was knocking everyone out. He, he ring-crafted experience Luke Hill around the ring. Luke Hill was trying to take his head off. He hit him with a big shot that only made his school IQ levels go up more. And he just scored around the ring. So after being able to handle Luke, you knew he was in good shape, but he had all his skills ready for the fight. Then it, then it just made me a bit more at ease. So on the fight night, did your dad get into fight mode? Was switch on? Was he different from his normal sort of manners? Yeah, completely different to how he normally is. So when it was a go button time, he was there walking around, completely different, changed face, eyes flaring, muttering to himself. It was like a completely different, unrecognisable state. Smith's comeback plan was three fights, two wins and a negotiation with unlicensed governor in promoting Alan Mortlock for an eight-round title fight. Smith had accepted a fight with Wise Guys Promotions against a 38-year-old New Zealander. 
who was unbeaten in four fights. No spring chicken himself at 38, seven years Smith's junior, he felt it would be a decent challenge to keep things moving. Just as the show was about to move on, the 38-year-old New Zealander would pull out at late notice. Unbeknown to others, behind the scenes, Smith would be carrying an injury in the opposite elbow to which caused his first retirement and required surgery. Smith arrived at the famous old venue at the York Hall, Bethnal Green, to be told, there's a fighter from Bristol that will box you. He's unbeaten. Smith replied, okay, fine. Then the promoter of Wise Guys, Mark, said, Joe, I want to introduce you to Jack Ramadan. He runs a charity in which I want you to help raise awareness. Smith said he had a heartfelt chat with this hero of a gentleman that was giving up so much of his time to help the youth of his part of East London. And when he went on to explain his heartbreaking hurt as one of the youths in his area had been fatally stabbed, Smith said to Jack, leave it with me, I'll do my best. Smith then went backstage with his best mate and cornerman, Johnny Fagan. When settling into his dressing room with Fagan alongside his son, Rhymer, who was also on the card, in a light heavyweight clash against Irish Mickey Tien. The promoter said, your opponent is a 50-year-old. 50-year-old, asked Smith. Are you sure? He said, yes. He's a tough nut from Bristol. Smith said, shit. We're 95 years old between us. Turning to his best mate, Johnny Fagan, Smith said, this is it, boy. I'm going to bow out here. I'm in the most famous boxing venue in the UK. There's reports that me and Reimer are arguably the first father and son ever to box on the same bill at this venue. And I'm representing a great worthy cause. So I'm going to bow out here, mate. It might not get any better than this. Smith added, if the old boy pulls something out the app, good for him. But if I've got the upper hand, I'm going to look after him. Smith entered the ring to the sound of the Sweeney's theme and then followed by the theme for the gangster movie, the Long Good Friday. Underneath his red and white hooded dressing gown, Smith was wearing a balaclava. To the crowd's amazement as they tried to figure out, where's he coming from here? The bell rang and Smith was smoothly in his stride and seemed to have things measured against the perfectly shaped Paul Wiltshire. Smith was controlling things well when Wiltshire's corner, headed by good ex-pro Dean Cooper, urged Wiltshire to push forward and work harder. It's only then that Wiltshire walked into the well-timed jab of Smith. When they clinched, Wiltshire said to Smith, I'm knackered. Smith said, come on, old boy, let's get through this. We might not do this again. And when the bell rang, referee, former European and world champion, Wayne Alexander, went to Smith and said, well done, you showed some nice skills. Smith then took the microphone and held up his balaclava and said, to all you youngsters, I'm speaking to you all out there, throw this away and crime with it. Go and find your sport. Go and find your career. Go find your role models in sportsmen and nice gentlemen like Jack Ramadan. Don't join gangs, join teams like football teams, golf teams, swimming, boxing, snooker, darts, etc. It's teams, not gangs. As Smith threw his balaclava into the crowd, he said, thank you all. Love to you all. God bless you all. The crowd stood and applauded Smith. Smith's son, Reimer, had beaten Irishman Mickey Tiernan on points. Smith said Paul Wiltshire was a gentleman and very, very game to be jumping in the ring at such late notice. At that age, I have nothing but admiration for him. As Smith was posing for pictures with his fans, his opponent, a West London reporter, said, What next, Joe? That's it. It's over, Smith replied. Smith waved and turned headed towards his dressing room. Fans were clapping. One fan shouted out, One more, Joe. For a moment, he stopped. It seemed as though he might turn around. He teased the crowd, 
turning, but just waving and then headed back to his dressing room. It was over and Smith judged it perfectly. When he had his first fight, age seven, and when he had all the gym fights, thousands of rounds of sparring, all his bare knuckle fights and his unlicensed career, over 40 years of participating in the fistic game, never once had he been on the floor. And I feel this is a fitting end to a career that only most could dream of. And making such a statement against this problem we have of the gang culture and knife crime. So many fighters dream of fighting at the famous old York Hall Bethnal Green. And to be on the same bill as your son is extremely rare, given the age gap, risks and life expectancy of a boxer. But to do the rare feat at such a famous venue was almost fairy tale stuff. And not only did a former European and world champion ref his belt and threw him a compliment as well. Who could hold it against this legend of West London? I'm going to make my own conclusion having followed Joe Bugner Smith through his unbeaten career. But before I get an interview with the man himself, I'm going to get an expert opinion on his boxing skills and find out about this fascinating character. But Joe, yeah, he come into my gym. He's been, uh, probably me and Joe must have spent probably 350 rounds together. He's helped me out in some of my fights when I was fighting in the past. And then Joe obviously was getting ready for his fights and I helped him out. Don't matter how hard we hit one another, no matter if one of us had a good spar or a bad spar, we was friends. Now, I remember Joe, uh, he had a very, very good left hook and Joe was a big puncher. Uh, I can honestly say he was a good puncher. Good, solid puncher. Middle of range puncher. And I always, always think they was the dangerous ones. I've been a friend for him for a lot of years and today we die, we'll be friends. And me and Joe's been through thick and thin together. Look, I've had many times, I've had many times when I've come on hardships, Joe's been there for me. And vice versa, we're there for one another. And Joe, I'm given the fullest, most respect. You know, I only like to be around decent people and Joe is a proper, good, decent person. So Joe possesses his wide ranging box of tricks and he's only halfway through his life, I hope. I wonder what he'll do next, he'll probably be an astronaut. Hard man, boxer, entrepreneur, golfer, speaker, author, he is all these things, he, he really is. And uh, to me, he's also Joe, my good friend and uh, a good man. It's been a laugh and a joy having him in my life this last 25 years. Talk to me about your dad, Joe. He's just very, very competitive. He beats me at every sport going. Dart, snooker, boxing, golf, pool, anything you like. I will beat him in the boxing ring one day. Talk to me about your dad then. Uh, he's a great learner. He told me the, how to read, swim, snooker, golf, boxing, uh, ABC, the alphabet. Told me how to ride a bike. Uh, he should definitely definitely be a professional boxing trainer. I think he's a champion all-round teacher. Here's the man himself, Joe Bugner Smith. You were born Joseph Smith, also known as Joe Stockins, but better known and more widely known as Joe Bugner Smith. Tell me where did the name Bugner come from, Joe? Yeah, well, well what, what happened there, a lot of people thought um, back in the day I had blonde, curly hair. So they thought it was the uh, resemblance of Joe Bugner, who also had blonde, curly hair. But the fact was, it was nothing at all to do with that. It was the fact that my, my uncle Neville, I was born in 1971, and Joe Bugner was a British and European heavyweight champion. So he picks me up as a baby in arms, and he says, is this gonna be our next Joe Bugner? So it stuck with me ever since. That's where Joe Bugner come from. 
Joe, you've explained that you never boast of your fighting skills. I'm not pushing you in that direction, but please tell me, what do you think you possessed inside that kept you unbeaten, especially in the early days when you were just a boy, often against men in bare-knuckle fights? That's a good question. Um, I, I'm a sportsman. Uh, I've learned that the winner is much, much happier than the loser. That much I know. But um, it's just it was just on, on, on the crest of a... Um, I was just, you'd sometimes be sitting on the fence going through a pain barrier and you've got to make the choice of do you want to go through the pain barrier and win or do you just want to say, fine, I'll give up. So um, I just love winning um, more than the physical pain that I endured. I don't think it's a crime for somebody to lose a fight, but I think it's criminal not to give your best. So I was willing to go that, um, that extra mile, and that's what I personally felt inside that got me over to victory as opposed to defeat, because it's not always a bed of roses when you're in there. In your 38-year career span, you've never been put down with a punch. Um, to me, this undoubtedly makes you a tough man. What do you think would have happened if someone like Lennox Lewis, for example, hit you? Oh, I think, undoubtedly, it would be very painful and it would hurt. Do you regret not turning professional with the British Boxing Board of Control um, to see how far you could have gone in the licence ranks, Joe? Um, not really, because um, it is something, it's like regrets in life, you, you can't have them because you can't really, you can have them, but I haven't got me. You can't turn them back anyway. But um, what I have to state is I was loved by my fans as being the London heavyweight unlicensed champion. If I don't think I could have got more love if I'd been the uh, Southern Area champion or the British professional champion. So I, I, I think I remained uh, my hope um, rooted in the arts of my uh, much loved fans. Um, so therefore, no regrets. I mean, I, I, I used to go jogging. I'll give you an example. I would have sometimes 20 kids, a bit like the mini Rocky, um, a, a bit of a mini version of the Rocky film. I'd have 20 kids in tow, uh, like Floyd Mayweather, Tyson Fury, um, Rocky Balboa, all of these legends of the past. I too even had a wrestling match, yeah? So I, I, I had my pound of flesh, I, I struggled to walk up my town more than 30, 40 yards before I had somebody bid me, shake my hand, wave to me. So I, I'm forever grateful. I think I've milked my career very satisfyingly in the unlicensed division. So no regrets at all. And tell me what do you like most about yourself as a fighter? Ah, what I like most about myself as a fighter? Uh, it's a good question. What I like about myself most as a fighter, I think would be on occasion, it's happened on a few occasions, I've had the upper hand of a fighter and I can see fear in his eyes and having the love in my heart to pull back. That makes me happiest most as a fighter, for sure. Absolutely. What was your favourite fight, Joe, during your career? My favourite fight, um, good question, uh, it's, you know, um, my favourite fight I think probably lies between two, I think possibly my best performance is when I lifted 
the unlicensed heavyweight title. Um, I felt like I was at my peak. I was age 32, um, and a late friend of mine, the legendary Les Stevens, who was a great fighter of his time, he was a professional Southern Area champion, and he went, he went the distance um, with two world champions. He was a legend of his time, and he was a straight-talking guy. Went out and lifted that title, he came over, shook my hand, congratulated me. He said, you didn't only box well, and you boxed well against a good opponent. And, and he had shook my hand and congratulated me on that. That was one of my favorite um, fights, but it wasn't my favorite fight. My favorite fight was my comeback in my 45th year. I had all my friends and family, uh, people close to me, worried about my comeback, um, but, and my well-being. But I felt absolutely fine. Whilst my physicality wasn't back in its prime, my mental state was fantastic. I relaxed. I'd done the best of my ability with my training. And as my body would allow me at that age, I got through it. But the mental side of me was so relaxed over them when I was 32. I could potentially then see how somebody like George Foreman had lifted. Um, his title because maturity I was bang on whilst not physically and the, 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 the short end to that question is you're meant to be able to fight well at 32 if you something but you're not meant to do it at 45 and um, I felt like I got myself nicely safely I think I handled a guy that was not too bad a fighter that could have beat some border control fighters so that was my favorite fight my comeback Joe you're one of the pioneers of unlicensed boxing in West London. Explain your career to me as a promoter, please, Joe. That was fun. Um, I think we ticked most of the boxes. I brought to the table title fights and some very good fights. And I had a broad range of fighters. Believe it or not, I had fighters on my show from time to time, aged just seven, year, seven years of age. And I insisted they fought with no shirts on and they got paid £50. And um, none of the trophy stuff, just £50 and no shirts on. And, and I think that, that cements the unlicensed word of it because um, the British Board of Control wouldn't have licensed and wouldn't have given them a licence. So, uh, yeah, it was good. And I installed dreams in them young fighters, you know, so I'm happy with that. In fact, some of them fulfilled some dreams. They continued... Moving forward, one, one become a professional champion with the British Board of Control, one become an unlicensed champion. Um, and in fact, there's still one unbeaten today um, with the British Board of Control. So we've got them on the right path. And um, there was other ordinary guys that hadn't done much boxing that wanted to go in there, swing your hands around, have a tear up to see what the adrenaline was like. We, we catered for that. And we, we also had some um, fighters at the other end of the spectrum um, that wanted to turn the clock back. So we took them on a dream trip down memory lane. You know, well, one to note was Jimmy Stockings. So he fought in his mid-40s. And Jimmy is such a legendary fighter that um, they had written a book on his career. And um, another guy that was an author, um, Richie Crazy All Sorcery from the northeast of England, Hartley Paul. Nice guy, Richie. Had the pleasure of having a beer with him. Good warrior. He come all the way down to the West London scene. And there was even... Um, a TV star, uh, Rhino from Gladiators, he, he got in and done a bit. And so when I look back, none of this would have been possible had I not got the wheels in motion to open the doors for the West London scene. So I'm really 
satisfied in, in, in that sense. We made nicely for a lot of charitable causes along the way. That was obviously satisfying. And nobody got hurt in the ring. There were some big knockouts, but they dusted themselves down and got on with it. Nobody got uh, out of the ring. Although I must say it kicked, kicked off massively one night. It was like a massive big bar brawl, if you like, times 10. Um, but they was just using their fist and maybe a bit of the head button, whatever went with it, but they all ended up with either okay or just a few cuts and bruises, thank God, they were all right. So on, on the old, nobody got a in the ring, out of the ring, and I think it was good entertainment. And if I really ever wanted to cement, you know, cement the feelings of the public, when I thought, um, did we entertain them or not, when I thought uh, on my comeback fight, when I left going for my car, I was heading out the venue, and up ahead of me was a crowd of people, and behind me was a, there was a crowd hurrying behind me, and I, I, I didn't quite know what was going on. When I got through the doors, they sort of boxed me in, started asking for my autograph. Now, you won't bear in mind, I'm just an ordinary bloke, ordinary bloke from the streets, and I'm signing autographs in a version of boxing, if you like, that was previously outlawed and underground. So here I am signing these autographs and I felt very, very humbled. And if I really wanted to um, cement the trust that I did entertain, me and other fighters, um, in that field, that, that probably was it. Yeah, good career. Enjoyed it. Joe, it's said that you're a very skillful and knowledgeable trainer. You also have your licence with the British Boxing Board of Control. Explain your career to me as a trainer, please, Joe. Yeah, well, um, as a trainer, it's it's been hard work and rewarding because it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I can boast I've never had a fighter stopped in my corner. You know, what I mean by that is a fighter that I've led out and trained. I've got about an 85% win rate. So we're fairly good in that field. Um, but the science of... Boxing, I don't find very difficult because I've been around it a long time. I just think about it, and there's only X amount um, a boxer can do. And the main thing really is you have a boxer in this corner, and you're trying to get him to beat the boxer in the other corner. And if you if you've done that, um, you're fairly well sussed it. So um, you know, I know the other trainers trying to achieve the same, but that's the cat and mouse game, and that's where we put our skills together. Um, and that's the fun of it, because most trainers probably think they know most of it all, and for me, I think I know most of it all, and all, not all of it, so I'm still willing to learn. But um, one thing that did satisfy me, I, I have my own running method um, that I developed purely for boxing, entailed to X, however many rounds we're fighting, so I would have a method to, example, four rounds, six rounds, eight rounds, and so on. And um, I took a fight route to Fort Aventura and um, the Canary Islands. And um, I was over listening some trainers speaking. And uh, they were talking about the running method of the GB squad. And um, so I put an ear to the matter. And they said they had X amount of boffins and scientists from around the world. They got this you know, really good running method for boxing. And the GB squad are using it. But it transpired that I'd already had that method um, several years before. So well, that was quite satisfying in fulfilling that I've built a method um, that took six or so scientists 
boffins, whatever you call these people, to do it. And uh, it was created by a little old me. So that, that was satisfying and probably gives me knowledge to know a little bit about the game. And if you had to sum up or assess your career, how would you put it, Jim? Sum up and assess my career, uh, that's really um, a not for me to say. Well, what I've done, I've laid the facts barrier. Um, people have got the footage, so they therefore have an opinion. If, example, um, somebody thinks I'm quite rubbish at the game, that's fine, that's their opinion. If they think I'm okay in mediocrity, then that's fine as well, that's their opinion. And if somebody thinks I'm a decent to fairly good at the game, and then that's good for me, but I'm not really going to assess that. I, I, this film has laid all facts and footage bare, so I'll let the public make up their mind on that. So in which field of boxing, whether it be the knuckle or the gloved, were you better at, Joe, and why? Uh, for whatever use I was, Christian, I felt I was a little better in the knuckle field. For the simple reason, I like the ABC, one, two, three, simplicity of it. Back in my day, we fought with zero gun shields, zero bandages. Don't get me wrong, punch the darts with a bandage or a boxing glove. But um, had I had bandages in my day, I would have had many broken bones in my hands. Um, and lots of people wouldn't have had their teeth knocked out. Um, have your gum shields, but I like the simplicity of just go out there, get your shirt off, have a good fair play, man, and see the one that could tough it out with stamina, skill, bravery. We didn't have referees, judges, home and away politics. I just felt the freedom, you know, for, for whatever, you know, uh, my skills were. I could move around bigger areas, I could do a little bit on the back foot. For me personally, I thought I was better at knuckle fighting than boxing. That's just my take. Would you ever fight again? I know it won't be a popular question with some of your family members. Um, would I ever fight again? I hope not. And when I say hope not, um, I like to think I'm a man of fairness, of love. I have children with impeccably good manners. Um, I don't take drugs, I'm not a violent drunk, so I'm looking at all costs not to get in trouble. If somebody wanted to, um, if somebody wanted to, uh, do their worst on a man that wants to give them love and friendship, I will do my very best to defend myself. But beyond that, no, I won't fight again. And yourself, Lenny the Governor McLean, and Roy Pretty Boy Shaw all fought in the heavyweight division. How do you feel you would have got on against these guys? I would never compare myself to those guys. When you mention the, the different errors, I'm not going to make comparisons. When you mention unlicensed boxing, these guys are the true legends. This um, documentary that you made on me, this film, would never be made if it weren't for those guys some 20 plus years prior. I knew Roy was a lovely man and a friend of mine. I didn't know Lenny, and, um, but they both passed on. God bless them both, and um, I would have been nice to these guys in case I see them in heaven one day. And who do you owe most to um, in terms of credit for it's helped you on the, for having the career you had, Joe? Well, firstly, I owe a lot to my fans because I, I used to get like coach loads of guys and girls come to watch me. So you need your support, but 
Um, it all stems from a little boy, so my, my grandparents, um, uh, Joe and Mary, Joe I named after Walter, my grandfather Joe died prior to me being, uh, pre previous to me being born. Um, I'm named after him, I have so many greats, I feel like I know him, I love him. So great grandparents um, on that side of the family, on, on my dad's side, uh, Jack Daly and his wife, my granny Roy, great, great love. Um, moving upwards, I'd have to thank my cornermen so, and, and my trainers. So Johnny Bloomfield, a good friend of mine and a great trainer, helped me a lot in my boxing career. Um, Tell Curry, um, a good friend of mine, and helped me usually in, in, in areas of my boxing. Um, and thanks to my father, and I was a good friend and supporter. Um, and thanks to my last ever corner man, my uh, late, uh, the late Johnny Fagan, my, my cousin, and my last ever corner man, a man I loved dearly. And I, I, I owe probably most of all, whilst I owe to all of these people, my lovely parents. They, they cuddled me, bathed me in love, um, give me great support, but beyond that, what really made me as a character, when I was wrong as a little boy or a man growing up, they'd be the first ones to let me know, and I think that set me in good life stead as a result. So I heard most of them, and I loved them by the day, uh, no less than when, 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 uh, when I last cuddled them. Bit emotional, sorry. And recently, to my amazement, I've got some footage of you here shadow boxing just one day after you had had uh, operation on your left elbow, and more recent footage of you flowing some more. Why do you still do this, Joe? Well, uh, I have an old car in the garage, and if um, you don't start it up and tick it over, it won't work anymore. And every now and again, I like hearing the thing rev. So I just tick it over, really. I just. I've been doing that from a little boy, and um, I just like moving my hands. If you don't use it, you lose it. I, I only want it for, um, for for no other reason than um, just just throwing my hands around. So I've done it for a long time. Joe, how are you going to fill your time now without boxing in your life as such? Um, obviously, competing in it first hands. Um, I have lots to do, Christian. Um, I have uh, Trevor's young enough to make a return to the ring at any given time. Um, whilst he's inactive, um, Ryan is on the fringes of coming back. He's only, I think, they're 26, uh, 29 and 26 respectively. Joe Jr. is just going out um, and try, trying his hand, so he's, he's an active boxer. I have a 10-year-old son, almost 10. Um, he throws his hands around a little bit, and we all dearly love golf, and so I, I, I love and chased my dream as a golfer still and I've got my two wonderful daughters, uh, my grandkids to bring up and um, so two grandsons, two granddaughters and I've also got to find time for my beautiful wife so I've got a full schedule and boxing's not off the agenda completely um, with my sons. Joe, in 2016, you were once reported as saying you'd only ever box again for the right charitable cause. Um, at the moment, there's a huge phase going on with the celebrities and YouTubers and old boxing stars coming back to fight. Um, is this something that you'd ever consider um, for the right charitable cause, obviously? Thanks for your time. God bless you all.